Hey, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to My Sentiments Exactly podcast. My name is Kay, and I'm your host. Today's special guest is Raylan Sandin. Raylan calls herself a spiritual observer and advocate of humanity and the soul that lives within others. She operates as a healing channel of We Are We consciousness and in her business, The Healing Space. She is also a best-selling author of The Ultimate Guide to Self-Healing Techniques. Raylan uses her training in energy modalities such as Reiki and hypnosis, psychology and storytelling to empower others through inquiry and encouraging them to live the softer way. She hosts a weekly podcast called Live Out Loud. Hope you enjoy today's episode. MSE podcast is dedicated to talking about the hard stuff and facilitating the conversations necessary for growth, healing, transformation, and genuine community. Now it's your turn. My hope is that you finish this episode feeling empowered to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing the MSE podcast conversation starter stick available at bygracenp.com. May these cards inspire you to speak out and be heard, and may you be authentically embraced for the uniqueness of your journey. Raylan, I am so excited to have you on My Sentiments Exactly to share about your journey, your advocacy, and other things about your story that have been life-changing and that have allowed you to now be able to help other people. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Kayleon. I'm thrilled. And um, thank you for inviting me into your space, my friend. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want us to get right into it. Um, If you would wouldn't mind just sharing aspects of your journey that have been very life-changing. And on this show, we talk about um, experiences, not just that have been life-changing, but that often have a lot of stigma um, associated with them. And these experiences are the experiences that keep us from fully embracing community. Um, So we definitely want to highlight those experiences. So if you don't mind just sharing your story and highlighting those, those areas where you had to overcome stigma, misconceptions, and even labels. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, sure, and gosh, I've, I've had plenty. Um, so my childhood started out, I, I was what you, would, what you would call a bastard, um, literally. Uh-huh. I did not know my father. Uh, did not have him in my life, didn't know who he was, didn't really know what he looked like or anything like that. My mother had all, had always been very honest with me about um, what went on between her and my father, uh, my biological father. Um, and it was abusive in their relationship. And, uh, um, and so the only dad figure that I had in my world at that time was my sister's father. And they were married, I think a couple, I don't know, three years, maybe four. And again, abuse, physical and emotional. 
knowledgeable, all of that, was in their relationship as well. So we're, we're noticing a pattern. I come from, yeah. right? Come from that. And um, when it's unhealed in, you know, your parents, it starts to follow, right? It's generationally handed down. And that's exactly what happened. So my upbringing, my mom was a single mom um, for quite a while and, um, you know, trying to do the best that she could with, with what she had. And, uh, but there was um, abuse in her two significant relationships, you know, up to that point um, that resulted in myself and my, my sister, and then also within her family um, growing up as well. So our childhood um, was, there was a lot of neglect there. Um, I can remember being made to be the parent of my sister. She was two years younger than me, still is. Um, and she likes to say that, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, she's a brat that way. <laughs> Um, so because I was the oldest, I was given charge of her, of taking care of her. And in many ways, I had to even take care of my own mother. So I was kind of had to parent her as well. Yeah. So with that dynamic going on, um, and my sister's dad and my mom having divorced, we would still go to his house on the weekends, like, I don't know, a couple times a month to visit and see his side of the family and, and all of that. Well, when I was about seven years old, and as we know, girls start to develop. Well, I started to develop very young. Okay. So he um, began then to, <clears throat> he took me into his room one day and said that daddies who love their little girls, yeah, and find them very special, um, do this and it's okay. And there's nothing to be afraid of or concerned about, you know, et cetera. So he began to molest me. Um, oh, please don't cry, my friend. <laughs> listen, listen, it's, you know, you wanted taboo, right? So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> And it's all, it's all okay. Uh, it wasn't, of course, then. I'm not excusing any of those behaviors or actions, right? 100% not. But he knew exactly how to manipulate the situation and manipulate me. Uh, because not knowing who my biological father was, I always wanted to be a daddy's girl. But also knowing that I am and have always been fiercely a fierce advocate. So yeah. this is where the advocacy comes in at a very young age. Um, I was always the one to defend people um, and stand up for them and with them if someone was teasing them or treating them badly or talking bad about them or, you know, just being mean, you know, essentially as a child. I just knew that something was wrong and so I was very vocal about what was wrong and what was going on. So if he had come to me and threatened me or threatened my sister's safety or threatened um, my mom or anything like that, I would have immediately said something. But because 
he, you know, there's a part of you when you're a child that wants to believe the adults in your world, you know, we're very dependent yeah. on them. Uh -huh. So I believed some of that, but there were, I know there was a part of me that was like, mm, is that really true? Yeah. But again, it was, uh, I wanted to be a daddy's girl so badly. Uh -huh. Um, but I'll tell you, obviously, physically, um, it was violating 100%. And, you know, when you're in those spaces, you get, the body does a natural, um, does its natural defense mechanism, and you begin to detach from the body. So I, I immediately, when that started happening, I had this sensory awareness and all of my memories are of me floating above the situation and watching it from above gotcha. so that I wasn't present in my body and I wasn't it's a it's a natural way for um, the mind to go somewhere else so that the trauma doesn't feel as acute in the moment right uh-huh so this would happen um, every time I would go to his house for a period of about five years. Wow. And yeah. And um, when it ended, there were some other pretty other graphic stuff that went on, but I'll spare you that. Uh, but when it ended was I was about 12 years old and my sister and I slept. He had cots us in another bedroom and we were in the bedroom together and it was early early morning and she was in the room with me and he came in to check on us and when he um, opened the door I was immediately awake I wasn't awake before then but I was immediately awake so my sleeping up to that point I was always hyper vigilant with my sleeping I'm sure could hear every sound, no matter where I was. So something told me audibly um, to just act like you're asleep and be quiet and stay still. Yeah. So he came over to me and he started doing what he normally did. And then he um, moved to... Um, try to fold down my my sleeping shorts mm. and proceed my sister moved in her cot she didn't wake up but she just moved um and he that was enough to scare him and he immediately stopped doing what he was doing didn't go any further and he i know he was kneeling next to me at that point again i'm my eyes are closed, but I'm watching it all above me. So I can see the whole room still in my mind and can see what he's doing. And he sat there um, just staring. And I'm sure he was wondering like, well, heck, if they wake up, what am I going to say? Uh -huh. So he got up and left the room and shut the door and sister was still asleep. And I don't know how much longer I stayed there. Um, but it was quite some time. Okay. And then when I, when I got home, 
I didn't say anything right away, but it was the day, it was the day of us having to go see him again. So this must have been a week to two weeks later. And I can remember, um, you know, we were supposed to, I think we were supposed to go to school or my mom was gonna take us over there or something. And he was, if we were going to school, he was gonna pick us up from school or something like that. And I just began to throw a fit. And I was not that child. I was very okay. complacent kid. So I started to throw a fit and my mom was like, what is going on with you? And she's screaming at me. She's getting mad. You know, she's, she's like, what is happening? Uh -huh. You're not listening. You know, you don't, this isn't like you. So she, she was like, okay, you need to tell me right now what went on. And I started crying and I said, I'm, I'm scared for my sister and I don't want him to hurt my sister. So then she really freaked out. And I think she told my sister to go play or go outside or something. And so she finally got it out of me. And um, by this time, by the time I was 12, my mom had already been remarried. And the gentleman that she remarried, um, I called him dad. He legally adopted me a year after all of this happened. Okay. Um, but at this point, he wasn't legally my father, but I called him dad. Uh -huh. So she called him and he, he ended up calling my sister's dad and told him we wouldn't be coming. And, and they went to the police. And so I had to talk to the police and that was terrifying. I thought, you know, I was going to get in trouble or I still even said that I was afraid to get him in trouble. I just wanted him to stop it, but I didn't want him. Anything you know, bad to happen to him. Yep. Mm -hmm. He got arrested and I think he spent a weekend in jail, um, but this was the early 80s, so there wasn't really a whole lot else that they did for that sort of thing. Okay. Um, he didn't have to register as a sex offender. I think, really? he, yep the laws back then were really not very, not what they are now. He didn't serve. He, like I said, he spent um, a weekend in jail. Um, and I think maybe he had to do some classes or something, but that was it. And then my sister was still allowed to go over there. Even after all of that. Yeah. And that was a really, that was a source of a lot of of compounded trauma um, yeah. because I was terrified then because I wasn't there to protect her. Mm -hmm. So if he was going to do something to her, nobody would be there to know that. Exactly. And I remember screaming at both of my parents at the time and saying, why are you letting her still go over there? Uh -huh. He's going to do it to her. And I remember my mom telling me, I don't think he'll do that to her because she's his real daughter. Yeah, this was the mentality. Yes. So just a lot of messed up um, wow. situations and, and messed up people dealing with messed up stuff. Yeah. And not really handling their own um, crap. Uh -huh. 
so of course I didn't receive any counseling or anything like that through all of this situation. It was, yeah, it was basically, you know, we went to the cops, they took care of it. That should be the end of it. This should be over. But as you and I both know, you know, these traumatic situations follow us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I carried that, of course, because it lived within me uh, through my um, first marriage. And wow, I treated my children a lot differently. My kids, um, I was protective um, of whose homes they would go to. Absolutely. Um, you know, if, if they stayed the night somewhere, it was generally at my parents' house only, or my sister's, um, and, or, a, you know, a friend of theirs from church that we knew really, really well, and we knew their family. Uh -huh. But otherwise, they could have friends over at our house. Yeah. Um, and then... I would find myself having outbursts of anger just out of nowhere, right? So the trauma response, PTSD as we know it, yeah. Um, when it's un when it's not dealt with, when it's unhealed, and it's just left there, you know, those emotions are so big, and the rage and the shame. That wasn't my shame, because I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah right? But it was the shame of his act. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of this creates a lot of difficulty for people is the shamefulness of these violations are never the shame of the individual that it was perpetrated against. It's always the shame of the one who committed those violations, those acts of, um, you know, aggression towards someone else they're offloading what lives within them but this is how abuse perpetuates uh -huh. so i would have big explosions of anger and there were sometimes that it was directed at my children often it was directed at my ex-husband or just explode and just whoever was nearby you know kind of got it so i really battled with that and of course and you know this, you know, growing up in the church and, and um, coming in that environment, everybody's just telling you, well, you have an anger problem and you just need to pray. Uh -huh. You just need to ask God to remove it from you. Quick fix. Yeah. And that's a bunch of baloney. God doesn't even do that. <laughs> you know, he doesn't remove that stuff. I mean, I, I poured through the scriptures looking for examples of where... God would remove, you know, the, the burden or the challenge or whatever. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about his entire life. He had whatever affliction he had that the Lord never lifted. And on and on, you know, he didn't end the sufferings of Job. He didn't end the stutter of Moses. You know, he uses mm -hmm. these things, right? Yeah to get to grow us to strengthen us despite you know and so um i just really grew up believing that there was something inherently wrong with me mm. i didn't i didn't have 
a father that I knew, so I was already a bastard, and then, you know, coming into abuse and neglect, and I had to be the parent for my mother, and I, so I was never allowed a childhood. Yeah. I was never allowed my own feelings, right? And my own agency, so there was a lot of bitterness and rage. Uh, I can only imagine, yeah. Yeah. Um, but despite all of that, you know, I still had this open capacity for, even through that situation of wanting to understand the why. Why would he do that? What was operating in the background to create that situation? You know, when I was a kid, my comment was, maybe it's because he's lonely or he needs a girlfriend, you know, or he needs love somewhere. Love was missing in his life. And I remember my mom and the other adults in my world, my grandparents and that, just being like blown away that I would say something like that, you know, beyond my years. Way beyond. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I guess not the normal, you know, response to that. Um, so I, I lived with this dichotomy. I had this huge heart and, and very open empathy toward people mm-hmm. and um, could always, always feel people's emotions and always knew what was going on uh-huh. inside of them to the point where, and it still does, it freaks people out. <laughs> the level of knowing that I have, you know, okay. and I know you're aware of this, that intuitive, that's the spirit leading, Absolutely. right? Uh-huh. And so that was, that's always been open and active within me. Um, and then you have, you know, the contrast of all of this other stuff, and then the contrast of my rage, and my, my anger, and my upset, And so I always had this, that was my shame, because I always had this sense that I wasn't good enough. Uh And it was, it was my mark, you know, against me, right? Yeah. And so I didn't feel like I could really do much of anything in life. Uh The one thing I really wanted to be was... Uh, sorry, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> the one thing I really wanted to be was a mom. Yeah. Because I knew that I had a lot of love and I, I would love my children uh-huh. and do better. And in a lot of ways, I did do better. But again, being naive to all of that, when you have unresolved emotions and, and exactly. issues and trauma, if you don't handle that and if it you know, you don't have professional help, exactly. and, right? And other means aren't um, encouraged. Then, you know, that inevitably catches up with you. We can't outrun our wounds, right? We have to turn and face them. Yeah. So then I, as I got older, I began to see the importance. It was good that I advocated for other people but what I really needed for myself was to advocate for me exactly yeah 
to advocate for that little girl who had been so horribly treated and violated and her innocence had been ripped away and stolen. So for those who are listening, many of us that are in these um, helper caregiver kind of roles in life, Mm -hmm. you know, we're searching to fix other people. Yeah. We can't do that, Uh -uh. but we can fix ourselves. And that's where it really begins. Exactly. And so then when I understood that, I started really the inward journey. I had always been somebody who self-reflected, but up to that point, my self-reflection sounded a lot like self-punishment and self-hatred. Okay. Like negative self-talk. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because those were the messages that I was receiving from my outside world, right? From even the, the people in my family that I should have been able to trust the most. Yep. You know, um, but again, those messages that they were giving me were messages that they felt about themselves, but I interpreted it as something was wrong with me. Yeah. So you talked earlier about community. You know, I really didn't have much of one and never really felt like I belonged to any sort of community. Uh Growing up, I had a wide, diverse um, group of friends. You know, in high school, you form cliques. I was never a part of a clique. I had friends that I knew that were in the in crowd and friends that were the geeks and friends that were the band, we call them band weebies, <laughs> right? The stoners, the stoners. I knew a lot of stoners. Um, and, you know, the ones that, like, you don't want to mess with them because they'll mess you up. So I had a lot of connections. I was a connector of people uh-huh. um, because I just loved people. But I also had a lot of naivete about all of that. Mm -hmm. So as I got older then, I really started getting involved in um, energy modalities. I had heard of Reiki, um, gosh, when I was early 20s. And it always fascinated me. But again, growing up in the church, you know, that kind of stuff was, there's the taboo again, right, sister? You know That's what I'm the major about. taboo. <laughs> That's the devil. We need to remove it out of her. Yes. Right? So you can imagine my family when I, I uh, let's see, about 10, 12 years ago now, I was attuned to Reiki. I learned Reiki, so I am a Reiki master teacher. And um, at first, my kids were like, oh, that's really cool, mom. And, you know, I would do Reiki on them, and they'd like, this is really cool. That's neat. How are you doing this, you know? (laughs) Then my sister started talking to my oldest daughter and convinced my oldest daughter that I was of the devil. So it really caused a huge rift my sister said that to my daughter. So then it caused a huge rift in my family. I'm sure. To the point, I didn't talk to them for like three years. Um, Years? Yeah. 
to the point that my sister on the phone and I was laughing when she did it. She, this is the sister, mind you, that I always protected. She was my baby, right? Yeah. yeah. So she had said that I was of uh, Satan's spawn. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> one, of the, one of the worst curses you can give someone, I guess, right? Yes, it's on the list. Yeah, it's on the list. And I just laugh. And I said, wow, that's um, wonderful uh, conversation coming out of the mouth of a pastor's wife, because she was a pastor's wife at the time. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, that adds another dynamic. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so she, she was upset with me at that. Of course, but whatever. She had just called me Satan's phone. Yeah. And uh, she she did. She called me back a few days later and, and really apologized. And okay. yeah, for that. So we're good. Okay, um, good. <laughs> she really did. Yes. But my my family um, really um, they don't they know that I work with energy. Mm -hmm there's some aspects of energy that they're okay with, you know, mm -hmm. and they get that energy exists around everywhere. But as far as that, they don't, they just don't want me to talk about it around them. Got you. Okay. So I don't, you know, I don't push uh, anything that I do, but I will say that that really began, um, a, a real period of healing for me and a period of me really honestly looking at everything that had transpired in my life up to that point. And even the separation from my family, I was willing to have that um, because what it afforded me then was an opportunity for me to get to know me uh -huh. and find out who I am apart from any influence of theirs and anything that they expected or wanted of me. Yeah. Right? You know what it feels like to be under the weight of everyone else's judgment and Absolutely. determination. Absolutely. Yeah. And we are our own creation. You know, God created each of us individually. Uh -huh. And he did so with divinity and dignity and inherent value and worth separate and apart from coming through my mother. That's it. She was the container that held me. That's all. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, yeah. and any other relationship that exists outside of that, you know, is societal, you know, it's dependency or whatever. But I recognized and realized that I didn't have to maintain any of those relationships if I didn't want to, uh -huh. nor if they were beneficial for me. That's the key. That's the key. And I know that this is revolutionary and uh, kind of a vanguard idea for a lot of people because there is a lot of shame around walking away from your family if you need to. Uh -huh. It's not something I go around and just, you know, advocating for. For <laughs> yeah. yeah nobody asks for that or wants to no mm -hmm. and it and it was difficult during that time period but every time 
any time I thought of the alternative, I was like, no, I, I can't return to that because they see me as this person and I'm not that person. So until they see me as who I am now, if they can't accept that, even from a standpoint of, of being blood related, well, then I'm sorry for them. They're missing out. Yeah. So it was really a period of those three years, you know, kind of walking through that desert, right, by myself. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And with my friends, you know. Um, but uh, once we did start talking, my own advocacy was still um, present and still very much needed. And, you know, I eventually, uh, three years ago, um, received professional counseling for, you know, everything that had gone on in the family okay. dynamics. Yeah. And, and during that period of time, then, because of that, directly because of that, I was able to have a really big final conversation with my father about everything that had gone on. Mm -hmm. And it enabled me and allowed me to do so from a place of laying out the facts and removing the emotional charge and the blame, you know, pointing the finger and saying, Exactly. Wrong versus right. Exactly. So uh -huh. he could finally hear me. And it really, I will tell you, it, it led to my having a conversation with him and my mother again and both of them saying that they were not the parents that my sister or i needed and deserved and that makes a lot huge yeah and they owned up to everything and they said they were sorry and they asked for forgiveness and in that moment i tell you it was over and done and we have we can't go back to the past I don't want things the way that they were. I want new. Exactly. And what we have is new now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I'll tell you, I just turned 51, and it's taken every single day of those 51 wow. years to fight for this, my friend. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, wow. Uh, that was a lot, right? It was a lot, but it was very... It is so needed. Conversations like, like this is so needed. Yeah. There are so many people that have gone through similar experiences, some younger, some older, some, you know, around your age. And these conversations are important. A lot of people don't really know how to navigate through it because you can't go back and undo things. Mm -hmm. um, especially when it's related to trauma and it keeps showing up in different things. Um, like you touched on so much, not just your experience um, with molestation, but mm -hmm. also just how that impacted starting a family of your own. And yeah. a lot of people struggle with that. How's it going to be when I do get married or when I do start having children and I have experienced this trauma, you know, that has been unresolved. So you covered so much. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you 
being willing to share. And I mean, I'm, I'm a water box and I try to like contain <laughs> myself through just about all the episodes because when you're talking about stigma and you're talking about taboo and you're talking about life-changing events that have shaped people, yeah. it is really hard for me to, <laughs> you right. know, these conversations are necessary, but I'll like, you know, after the recording, I'll tell my husband it was a heavy one. Like yeah. emotionally and because I'm such a feeler, yes. um, it doesn't take a lot for me. And, you know, with us having a young daughter, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, it just really, and, and me being a woman myself yeah. who has had her own experiences with things, just hearing your story, you know, is, is inspiring, but it also, you know, really touches my heart and it's not easy to talk about. No, yeah. no, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I will say too, um, to the, to this point also, I just had surgery in January. I had, um, I had breast reduction surgery. Okay. They, um, it, it was a lot of strain on my back, created a lot of issues with my back and my neck and my shoulders and just a lot of pain. Um, but I will tell you also a lot of psychic pain, meaning psychological, you know, because that was an area that was directly related to what happened to me as a child. So we talk, yes, talking about energy, you know, emotions are energy in motion. And if they're left unchecked and unhealed and unaddressed and unexpressed, it will show up in anything. Amen, sister. Yes. They will live in the body and the body, the body is the first to respond Mm -hmm. to any of these events. Yeah. And sometimes we'll find our body reacting and we're, and our mind is going, what is happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting. Yes. And in fact, and we'll get to that. I, I wrote in um, a collaborative book about that. But I also work in, it's an energy modality called emotion code. Mm -hmm. And we pinpoint the specific emotions of where they're living within the body. And we can, we can remove those and give space to the individual then to finally honor what has happened to them and acknowledge it. And we can release generational stuff that's handed down. So the surgery for me really also represented everything that had happened to me as a child. Mm. And so, you know, physically removing that extra tissue physically alleviated a lot, but I'll tell you, even I'm still healing physically and emotionally from all of that. And there's still stuff that comes up now because there was a lot of, there's a lot of energy there mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff lived there. Yeah. And so it's all still coming to the surface. So we, even in showing up in the world in this way and doing this work, um, there's no guarantees and there, it, it never ends. It's a, it's yeah. a lifelong process. Yeah. But in the book, I write about body awareness through somatic experiencing and it's so important like i talked about when we have trauma 
our mind has made the meaning that it's not safe to be present in our body because of the things that have happened to us. And to be present with trauma. Yes. Yeah. You kind of go numb and you don't even realize that you're um, not self-soothing, but I, I forgot the phrase, but you're basically not being present in that trauma and in that emotion. You just kind of set yourself apart so you won't fully feel what's going on. 100%. You absolutely, that's absolutely exactly what happens. And that's that, that's that natural mechanism that I talked about. And yep. 100%. And so with somatic experiencing, it is, there are different techniques that I talk about in the book, and there's other people who teach on it too. Uh -huh. um, it's so important for us to connect back in with our body and recognize its safety and its security and create those safe and secure places within ourselves on our terms and how that feels to us so that we can then heal and overcome and release mm -hmm. all of those emotions and that trauma. Resma um, Menachem wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. Mm -hmm. It talks, he teaches somatic experiencing and it, and it takes you through somatic techniques alongside of speaking about what generational trauma has done yeah to our bodies mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's a great book i highly recommend it but i also highly recommend mine too oh yes and can you <laughs> mention the name the name of your book for those yes. who are listening? sorry it's the ultimate guide to self-healing techniques yeah and you were a collaborative author right yep chapter okay. 12 yep yeah yeah and also can you share um just everything else that you have going on and, and ways that people can stay connected with you Sure. So you can find me on Facebook um, as Raylan Sandin, and you can find me on Facebook on my um, business page, The Healing Space CO. I'm also on Instagram, The Healing Space CO, and on Twitter, Raylan Dow. That's T A O. Um, my Twitter feed is a little political too, but there's some other things on there too. I have a YouTube channel where I post. Um, I have a podcast. Yep, I have a podcast. That's right, friend. Yeah, come on. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Thank you. I have a podcast called Live Out Loud, and Kayleon's going to be on there with me too. I'm so excited. Yep, me too. And then I will I upload the videos from that onto my YouTube channel too, so you can catch us there too. And so it's exciting. Yeah. yeah so, wow. Thank you again for sharing your your heartfelt experience with us and just for your transparency i really appreciate this this conversation and your willingness oh you're so welcome my friend it's an honor absolutely yeah thank you so much and everyone raylan does you know self-healing techniques but she's also into racial and cultural advocacy and you'll see a lot of that on her social media um, as well. So make sure that you connect with Raylan on social media and thank you so much for tuning in. Did you enjoy this episode? If you haven't already, subscribe on your favorite listening platform and our new YouTube channel with video interviews premiering in season three. I'd also love for you to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing MSE Podcasts 
Conversation Starters Deck, available for purchase at bygracenp.com. Be sure to leave a review on one of MSE's listening platforms, share with a friend, and join the My Sentiments Exactly podcast community on social media at MSE Podcast. The podcast is available for listening on all major streaming platforms by gracenp.com and YouTube now. Hope to hear from you soon.